My eyesight is terrible. My parents passed on a lot of great genetic stuff to me, but one of them was not eyesight. I tell my kids the same thing. They can't see, but we gave them so many other good things genetically. I'm really glad that I live when I do now because my eyesight is so bad that if I lived pre-glasses, I would have probably lived to be the age of 14. I would have fallen into a hole and died because I didn't see that it was there in front of me. So I'm grateful that vision can be corrected, but I always wish that I didn't have to wear contacts or glasses. I just wanted to be able to see. And for a while, I kind of fell into a group of people who were kind of the name it and claim it prosperity gospel people. And one of the things that they said was that God didn't want me to wear glasses. God wanted to heal me. And if I had enough faith, I wouldn't have to wear glasses anymore. And so I spent, I don't know, a lot of time trying to have enough faith so that I didn't have to have glasses anymore, so that I could see without them. And to show faith, some days I would even not wear my glasses because I believed God would see that and God would heal me. And I tried all sorts of things and I still wear contacts and glasses to this day because it didn't work. I had been given a false hope. It, can God heal? Of course God can heal. But everything else that they were telling me about what God wanted for my life and about what God would do, and even just the fact that I had to work up enough faith on my own, that wasn't true. It's simply not the way that God works. And one of the byproducts of this was that they held out a hope to me that wasn't real. It was a false hope. I was listening to the wrong people and they were giving me a false hope and not accurately representing God. And it's a trap that not only did I fall into at that time, but I think people have struggled with over the years. And they're certainly struggling with it in the next passage that we're going to look at in Jeremiah 29. So we're going to look at Jeremiah 29 verses 8 through 11. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They're prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. So we're in our sermon series about exile about living in a foreign land where things are unfamiliar and strange. And we've been talking about how we need to name the reality and then figure out what God is calling us to do and to be during that time. Last week we talked about that we need to settle into this time and we need to be a blessing to the people around us. This week what we're going to talk about is kind of a caution and then also a promise that's important as we live in these strange times. So my starting point, and the starting point I think of the passage is that everyone is looking for hope. Offering hope to people is the most important thing that we have done over the last two years. We got laser focused on that, reminding people that even if they were alone, even if they were lonely, even if they were sick, even if they were running out of toilet paper, that there was still hope that they weren't alone, that the church would come alongside, that eventually things would get better. We offered hope. 
And I think that is still the most important thing that we can offer in our current context. Everybody is looking for hope. People around the world, people in our community, people in our church are all looking for hope in the middle of these crazy times. And so were the people in exile that Jeremiah is addressing. I think they were feeling so much of what many of us are feeling now. How long until we get back to normal? Will it always be like this? When is all of this going to be over? They have the same questions we do, and they want those questions answered. And so to answer the questions, they go to people who are supposed to have a direct line to God, prophets and diviners. And I kind of feel like in this passage, we need air quotes, prophets and diviners, because they're not really what they say they are. So first of all, what is prophesying? Well, I almost said that prophesying is speaking for God, but that's not exactly right. I think that can be really dangerous. I think you need to be very careful if somebody says to you, I speak for God. I think a better definition of prophesying is faithfully passing along a message from God for his people. And here's the problem that people are facing in Jeremiah 29, verse 9. They're prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. So they're saying things that God didn't say. Instead of faithfully passing along a message from God, essentially, they're telling the people what they want to hear instead, which is not a bad way to keep a church job, but generally is not what God is looking for or what people really need. Because the prophets and diviners were only telling them what they wanted to hear. They weren't giving them real hope. They were giving them a false hope. So we're all looking for hope, but hope is not denial. I'm going to wish this all away. If I don't acknowledge it, it isn't real. Well, good luck with that. Hope is not, it'll all be okay. No, it might not be. And it isn't okay now. Hope's not denial. Hope's not a pipe dream. A pipe dream is a preferred future that's fantasy, not reality. It's not really going to happen, no matter how much you believe in it. One of our neighbors when I was growing up had really a devastating mental disability. And I remember the day, I was just a kid, and he was five or six years older than me, and I remember his mom saying to me, he's going to be a lawyer when he grows up. And I remember thinking, he doesn't have the mental capacity for that. He, he, he has trouble dressing himself in the morning. I was nine, and I knew it wasn't going to happen. It was just a pipe dream. Hope is a realist. It accurately assesses the situation, but it clings to something that's more real. For us, our hope clings to the presence and the promise of God among us. So these people, the prophets and diviners, were giving them false hope. It wasn't from God, and it wasn't based in reality. So in order to find real hope, that's based in reality. I think there's a couple of things that we need to keep in mind. Number one, be careful who you listen to. We have some agency here. Even in this passage, God says, do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. 
So they were actively encouraging people to tell them what they wanted to hear, not the truth. So we can hear the truth and decide that we don't like it and keep looking until we find someone that will tell us what we want to hear, even if it's not true, even if it's a lie. And that's really, really dangerous. So we gotta be careful who we listen to. And a part of that is we have to be committed to hearing the truth. And this can be tough because sometimes the truth is not always pleasant. Sometimes the truth is hard. So hearing truth, let's, let's talk about that for a minute. I would make this observation. I find that when we're talking about um, trying to relate our faith in Jesus to how we should live, what we should do, how we should think, you know, the world, all those types of things. What I find is that as adults, we bring a set of assumptions. We bring history, we bring baggage, we bring what we know. And sometimes I know that the truth of the gospel is over here. So this might be what we know, and I might know that the truth is over here. And what I've discovered is you can't just go like this because it's too much for people. What you have to do is you have to keep pushing it over until finally you can include what is true because sometimes truth is different than what we've known before and sometimes truth is hard. And so once you say a truth that maybe is outside of people's boundaries, I think you get one of two reactions. You get potential growth, or you simply get rejection because it might just be too different from what people think they know or they do know. Potential growth might look like, hmm, I'm gonna wrestle with that. But you know what? That's what discipleship looks like. Discipleship, I think, uh, starts with, I don't know everything. I have growth areas. There are some things that I don't understand, so show me teach me, coach me. Now, I know several people that are omniscient, and it's really stunning. Or maybe I should say I'm always stunned when I'm around them, which you'll notice slightly different. But most of us, most of us are still growing. Most of us are still learning. Most of us have more to go. So contrast the willingness to grow with, I completely reject that. That's just wrong. And I think that there's an important point for us to consider in here. I don't think that you should go to a church or to church just to be comfortable. I think you should go to church or a church that challenges you. I remember talking to a guy one time. He's like, I don't come to church so that I can feel good about myself. I come to church because I want to grow. And I think that's a really healthy attitude because that opens us up to what God might be saying to us, that opens us up to truth. I think the greatest compliment I get after a sermon is when someone says to me, you made me think. We also have to recognize that not everyone who says they speak for God actually does. And so we have to be discerning about who we listen to. So how, are you, how can you be discerning? How are you supposed to tell who is telling the truth? Well, there's actually three fairly standard biblical tests for knowing whether someone really is a prophet or a diviner or is telling the truth. The first is the moral character of the prophet or the person 
himself or herself. I mean, nobody's perfect except for Jesus. Yes, God uses imperfect people. We all have faults, we all have frailties, but you know the difference between someone who has faults and someone who has real moral issues. And I don't think you can separate a person's morality from what they're teaching and saying. I, I don't think you, you can say, I think he's a terrible person, but I really like what he says. Because if you say that, that tells me as much about you as it does about them. It tells me that you'll cut them slack because they're telling you what you want to hear. And I think that's a slippery slope. So look at the moral character of the person themselves. Do they have serious moral and ethical issues or not? Another way that you can do that is look at the fruit that they produce. If they produce chaos and bad feelings and suspicion and selfishness, that's probably not from God. So the moral character of the person or the prophet himself has to be considered. The second biblical test is whether the message is consistent with the revelation of God. Is that thing that you're being told, is the thing that you're hearing, how does that check out with the scriptures? Does that line up with the fact that we know God is love? Does, is that in, in harmony with the fact that Jesus came because he loves everybody and wants everybody to know him? That's so important. We have to check what we're hearing with what we know from the scriptures because God has given us his word to help guide us to truth. So whatever is being represented from God has to align with God's word. I mean, the whole thing about me not needing to wear glasses, God didn't want me to have to wear glasses, that has to play all over the world. It can't just play in my context. God wants me to have abundance. God wants me to be rich. That has to be true in Zambia or Namibia or in Vietnam or in Brazil or as true as it is here because God's plan for the world is the same. So how does it line up with what God reveals about himself in scripture? And then the third and the ultimate test, particularly in prophecy and representing what God has said is, were they right? And Jeremiah picks up on this earlier. In Jeremiah 14, 13, he said, but I said, alas, sovereign Lord, the prophets keep telling them, you will not see the sword or suffer famine. Indeed, I will give you lasting peace in this place. So this is before the exile. And the prophets, the prophets are saying, it is only going to be peace. You don't have to worry. Then the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I have not sent them or appointed them or spoken to them. They're prophesying to you false visions, divinations, idolatries, and the delusions of their own minds. In other words, they were wrong the last time. Why would you listen to them now? Maya Angelou said, when people tell you who they are, believe them the first time. Jesus puts it slightly differently. Every good tree bears good fruit but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by the fruit, you will recognize them. So you can generally judge truth and trustworthiness by those three things. And if you refuse to trust people who are trustworthy, that'll just be frustrating. 
If you trust people who are not trustworthy, that will be a disaster. So instead of a false hope offered by untrustworthy people, what's the real promise in this text? What's the real hope? Well, that's in verse 10. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed from Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. We have a promise from God. I will come to you and I'll fulfill my promises. In other words, it's not going to be like this forever. You're not going to be in exile for forever. The pandemic isn't going to last for forever. Whatever you're going on, whatever's going on in your life, it's not going to last forever. God has a plan and God has a purpose and it's good. And he says this to people who are in exile and who will be in exile for 70 years. I promise I will come to you. And that's kind of what the passage in Revelations 21 was talking about that we read last week, that God will come and dwell with his people and he will be our God and we will be his people. That's the promise that we have. God promises to come among us in our situations and rescue us. I, I love a lyric from Wren Collective, their song, Behold He Comes. It says, a kingdom will come that shall not end where light owns the dark and hope will win. The empires of evil will no longer stand. They'll tremble defenseless before the great I am. The king is alive, he's on the move. He'll vanquish his foes and hell will lose. Injustice will flee from the flash of his sword and there'll be no question that Jesus Christ is Lord. We know where we're headed. Do we understand what a blessing it is to know that? So what does hope need to exist? It needs the knowledge that things will change for the better. And in God, we have that hope. Now, verse 10 is also tied to verse 11. And there's a problem with verse 11. It's super, super familiar, but not in this context. Verse 11 says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. If you went to a Christian high school or if you went to a Christian college in the yearbook that year when your parents put up pictures of you graduating and you as a child, there's a decent chance that that was the verse that they put in there. And God bless them because I, I love what it says. But the problem is that we rip it out of context. And context is always super important. This is not a catch-all verse that promises that you're going to get into the college that you want to go to because God has a good plan for you. It's not a catch-all verse that says only smooth sailing is ahead. That's, that's not what it's about. Sometimes we look at it too individualistically. Generally speaking, God sees his people corporately. As an individual, we share in the corporate promise. So what God is really saying is God has a plan for his people to give them a future and a hope, a good plan, the plan that he will be with them and they will be his people. We take part of that, but it's a corporate promise. We also may read it wrong. The verse doesn't say, for you know the plans you have for you, and I'm cool with that. The verse says, I, God, know the plans I, God, have for you. And so it's almost a dilemma. Can we trust that? Can we trust that God has good plans for us, even if they're not what we want? 
Can we trust that God has a plan and a future for us, even if we remain in exile for a while? The verse is not as much about getting your preferred future or having all of your problems fixed as it is about acknowledging that God is trustworthy and that we need to learn to surrender to God's will for our lives because we know it's good. So we need to acknowledge that he's God, that his plans are good, and that we can trust him even if we don't get what we want or even if it takes longer than we want. So let's put those two things together, talking about being long, because if you put those two verses together, it basically says, after 70 years, I have a plan for you, and things will change then. So it's kind of like, make the most of your situation right now, and trust that God is at work, even in exile, even when it's hard. Don't waste this time, because there's good and redemptive work going on. But let's think about how the people heard this, because I think that there's application for us here too. In 70 years, I'm going to bring you out of exile. I'm going to work in the meantime. Good stuff is going to happen. I'm still with you, but it's not going to be for 70 more years until I take you out of the exile. What does that mean? It means that some of the people will never leave exile. Maybe they're already middle-aged, or maybe they're older. You know, most people didn't live to be 70 back then. They'll never see their old homes. They'll never have their old way of living again. So important questions for them are, will they remain faithful to God? Or will their faithfulness really only be tied to if things are going their way? And if they're never going to get back to what they thought was normal, What are they going to pass on to the people around them, to the generations that come after them, to the people that are younger looking at them? I see two options. One is complaints. Oh, man, this is terrible. It's not the way it used to be. Man, things used to be really good. I hate the way things are now, which many people take as a viable option, but it's tragic. The other is the opportunity to leave a testimony to God's faithfulness. The Lord gives The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Sometimes things have been good. Sometimes things have been bad. But the constant has been that God has always been faithful. That's a much better choice. So here's a question that that came to me. I think for the people that are not going to return from exile, to the people that won't see things go back to, uh, to normal or the way they want it to be, are you willing to plant a tree whose shade you'll never sit under. You might never benefit from some of the things that you do, some of the direction that you help set for the future. You might never see the benefit of the shade of that tree, but other people will. What kind of legacy do you want to leave? Do you want to be known as the person that planted the tree that now is shading people, or just somebody who complained because they didn't get what they wanted? Some of the people will never leave exile. Some of the people won't know anything but exile. They weren't there before. They were maybe born in exile or they were too young to remember before. So how can we share the vision of God, the vision of hope with them? How do we share God's goodness with them even in the middle of exile? How do we give hope to them who've never known anything different, that there is a better way that God has for them? I think that's important to consider. 
Some of the people will go back to the land. What do they need to carry with them? What are the lessons that they need to learn? And I think that question will become very obvious in a couple of weeks on Palm Sunday. We've been in exile. We're going to go back to the land. What is it really important that we not forget and that we carry back from exile to normal life? It's a real opportunity to go, God, I trust you. God, I'll follow you. God, you're God, and I'm not. And I can believe, even in the middle of exile, that you have a plan and a purpose, a future and a hope. And I will hang my hat on that. So let me ask you three questions. Number one, who do you listen to most? Number two, what stands in the way of you fully trusting God for today and for the future? And number three, what legacy of faith are you sharing with the people around you?